in our venue here, like our customers are all great because it is so small. It fills up fast with regulars. It's the same people all the time and you get to know them and they start treating it like it's their kind of spot as well. And that's the nice bit. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Melbourne is the home of small bars in Australia, the home of small restaurants, of holes in the wall, where the character and energy of the owner, where the characters and energy of the owners manifest in unique, bespoke dining experiences. What is it about Melbourne's nightlife that has forged the way for such small, unique offerings? Sam Stafford is the owner and chef of Mono Exo. Sam, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you, mate. You uh, launched a very small and unique venue um, a couple of years ago now. Um, what was what was the, the inspiration in, in doing such a small, um, bespoke sort of venue? Um, I think it was more about the space that we found that kind of dictated the size of it. I was just obsessed with this space that we had. It used to be a cafe and a guy bought it, turned it into a small bar and then wanted to get out rather quickly. So like we used to, me and my business partners used to come here heaps when it was the cafe. So as soon as it became available, we just jumped on it and then realized it was probably too small, if anything. Take us back to that time. You obviously liked the site. What, 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 what were your visions at that time of what you wanted to do and what did it quickly change to? Well, we opened the venue with um, me and Joe Jones after both of us had just worked together at the Mayfair. So that was like a rather, not too large, but a larger restaurant in the city on Collins Street. And it was all rather French and bistro-y and very much one thing. So what we did next, wanted we wanted it to be a completely different thing. So we didn't want it to be you know, too over the top. We wanted it to be very casual and small and personal and intimate. But, yeah, we weren't, you know, too hung up on any particular idea. We just kind of wanted to see what the space would allow us to do first. The idea ended up uh, leaning on great drinks and inspired by by Asia and Japan, but not not in a traditional sense. Um, tell us a bit about um, when you found the uh, found and landed on the idea. Well, at first, initially, because the kitchen here is well, everything here is just so small, and there's just no no space to do anything like too over the top, really. Like the kitchen's two square meters; it's tiny. So we. We did kushiyaki, like strictly kushiyaki when we opened just because that's all we could fit, like one grill in the kitchen, a little benchtop deep fryer. And we were hoping to kind of just do everything on sticks and that would, you know, speed up all the processes and kind of make the economics of it work a bit quicker. But, yeah, COVID happened, so... That kind of changed everything after that. Well, it changed everything for so many operators. What sort of impact did it have on what you were doing? Well, particularly for us, like selling things on sticks in that kind of format, like 
you know, eight or seven, six dollars a piece, one by one by one. It's a real grind to get any reasonable amount of money through the door, which is like, that's easy. Well, hard enough, really, in one sense. But then when the space restrictions came in and we were looking at having a maximum of six or seven people in here at a time, and when the spend per head's around $40, that's just not possible at all. Like, so every which way we looked at it, it was just not going to work. Like, so after COVID, we were sitting around in lockdown and we have to, you know, we had to change concepts because we just can't have people here spending that little amount of money. And there's no real tasteful way of going about it other than just making the dishes bigger and making them more expensive. And, but then, you know, like there's so much investment has to go along with that. You can't, like if you're asking people to spend twice as much money in the venue as they always have, they expect certain comforts that we didn't start off with. So yeah, just having to, you know, throw more money at the problem when there's not enough money there to start with is a bit daunting but I mean the changes worked really well for us I think it suits the space a lot better and you know the feedback we've got from people is a lot better they want to spend more time here and like we're happy for them to dictate what we offer them so I guess it's worked out well for us take us through those changes and particularly on the menu how, how different is it and what are you serving we're going from just strictly skewers and we're just serving them on like stainless steel trays. The wine offering wasn't, it was good, but like it wasn't, there wasn't a big range of any of the drinks. So once we're asking people to spend a bit more money here and spend more time here, like we have to have a bigger wine list. We have to have nicer glassware, you know, we have to have, we can't just serve everything out of tumblers anymore because, you know, if you start charging people for, you know, $20 drinks, they don't want it out of a water glass. So all that kind of investment, like all the stock we had to get for that was a bit daunting. But, I mean, the kits and stuff is easy for us. It's, we can't. We've got two little underbench fridges to prep into, and that's it. So we can't really do a huge menu. We can just kind of do larger versions of the same kind of things. But, yeah, like it's – it wasn't too over the top. It's still the same venue, just a fresh coat of paint, really. You've worked at some pretty incredible restaurants. Take us back to when you were young. When, when did you first get interested in, in food? Um, really, when I just started my apprenticeship, probably. Like, there was no real food culture around my family growing up. Like, I grew up in the Southern Highlands, and it's not very multicultural there. Well, especially when I grew up there, so... Even going out to restaurants, there was kind of like one or two just Chinese restaurants in the area and one maybe one Indian restaurant. 
So it was only really when I started my apprenticeship that I got to see a lot of stuff and really got into food. But I mean, it was exciting then at that point because just getting into food and there's already enough stuff to, you know, kind of keeps you excited. But having not tasted so many different things and or even heard of things like that before was pretty exciting. Are there, is there any ingredients or um, techniques that you remember from those early days that sort of um, ignited that sort of interest in food? No, certainly not. Like the first restaurant I started in was like a, it was like a pretty dingy little cafe kind of bistro restaurant in just outside of Barrel. And I spent the first six months of my apprenticeship there when I was real young. But that was kind of just like, you know, serving pies and stuff to tourist buses that drive through the Southern Highlands. Like it was all pretty grim kind of, you know, Thai beef salad that's not at all Thai or really a salad kind of stuff. But like once just growing up in that area and it was like, there's a lot of pubs and a lot of steak places, but after leaving there and moving to Sydney and just seeing all the kind of restaurants chefs would go out to eat at at night, that was really the exciting part for me where I finally got it and was like, oh, it's a lot different to what I thought this job was. There's a lot more options going on. There's a lot more different cuisines that I even knew existed. You, you spent some time in the kitchen at uh, Momofuku Sioba. What was that experience like? Yeah, that was great. Um, yeah, it was wild. Like, I think it's very, really fun, but kind of the most stressed I've ever been ever simultaneously, you know? Like, the people we worked with there were all so good and they were all operating on such a high level constantly and it just seemed so natural to them but seeing that was pretty impressive but just working I mean there was always this sense of pressure there like everyone coming in really wants it to be this momofuku thing and yeah just trying to live up to that expectation constantly was always a bit a bit much for me I think it was, you know, once you start charging people for their dinner and that much before they even get there, because that wasn't, you know, really normal at the time. People kind of come in with much bigger expectations. And, yeah, it was – I think the difficulty was just trying to make it look easy there the whole time. It's just the amount of effort that went into the preparation – so once service came, everything just looked very calm and quiet. But working with Ben and, I mean, Chase Levecki was there at that point too. Those two were incredible. Like, seeing Chase run a service was pretty impressive and the food Ben was doing at that point was probably the favourite food I've cooked in a restaurant. Are there any dishes from your time in that kitchen that you can tell us about that you remember? I mean, the one everyone I think remembers is that watermelon and raw beef and radish dish. It's just the the 
seared beef, grilled watermelon, sliced radish and black bean. But, I mean, doing the house of card tower of radish and that every night was always, like, it was just always got to a point where it kind of bottlenecked in service and everyone had to jump onto the radish section. And when you're trying to stack them like an actual house of cards, kind of, you know, A-framed together on top of each other, and trying to go fast and you've got, you know, four people next to you doing it at the same time, bumping shoulders. That dish was, I mean, I always loved doing it because it was just the difficulty of the plating kind of made half the dish and it seems so obnoxious at the point. But if, you know, you're not there to do it, no one's going to do that kind of stuff. So just... Thinking like that, you know, like this dish is half the reason this dish is impressive is because it took so long to make. It doesn't necessarily taste that much better, but that's what they're here for. And if everyone could do it, then it wouldn't be that impressive. What did you take away um, from your time at Momofuku Siobo and working with Ben Greener? I think just the whole... The culture there, like, the culture there was just very, I was always very impressed by it. Like, everyone there just pushed so hard every day. Like, there wasn't any pressure on, you know, from Kylie or Ben to push that hard, but everyone came in, like, really wanted to be there. and No one ever really had to get asked to, you know, be that good, but everyone kind of pushed each other on and was motivated by each other. And there was kind of this like, yeah, this confidence that was just run through the whole team when you knew everyone was pushing in the same direction. And like seeing the front of house with, I think it was Kylie and Richard Hargrave and Ambrose at that point. So it was, kind of ridiculous looking around and just seeing how talented everyone there was and they're still pushing every day and they're still trying to get better and I mean I I wish I could be that relentless you know but this is how good they were you also spent time in the kitchens of Nomad and, uh, and Town Mouse which is no longer there well, how different were those kitchens compared to Momofuku? I mean, like, hugely different. They're, Momofuku was kind of, to me, it always seemed like a, an exercise in excess. It was just, like, it, for better or worse, it was a casino restaurant, which, I mean, I hated that. <laughs> like, going into a casino every day to work kind of sucks. But, you know, the things that can afford you to do within the restaurant is pretty ridiculous and you're not really going to do that kind of stuff at a restaurant like Town Mouse where it's, you know, privately owned by the people working in the restaurant and, yeah, we just don't have that kind of money to just spend on food or equipment or staff or like it's not like you 
it's not better or worse. It's just very different. And like nomads probably somewhere in between where there's, you're not catering to, you know, $280 set menu people, but you're still not wasting food, you know, like the program at Nomad was pretty impressive with, you know, the charcuterie, the cheese making, what I was, uh, so like there's really zero waste in that place other than, you know, veggie scrap. And then probably less waste at a place like Town Mouse. When did you start to land on a place on, with your own cooking and feel confident with your own voice in food? Um, well, when I moved to Melbourne, I was working at Town Mouse for a year. And that was originally because Embla was going to open up and I think they were staffing up to get people there. But Embla got pushed back for a bit longer and I ended up being at Town Mouse for longer than I expected. And then a friend of mine let me know there was a wine bar in North Melbourne that was looking for a head chef. So I kind of started talking to the woman that owns that place and was maybe thinking about doing that for a few months until Embla came back on the cards or something like that. And, you know, that just kept getting pushed further and further. So I took a job at this wine bar in North Melbourne called Clever Polly's. It's a, you know, tiny 20-seat natural wine bar in North Melbourne. And, I don't know, there wasn't really many places like that in in Sydney, I think. So when I moved to Melbourne, I saw that, you know, you can have these tiny 20-seat venues and you can be ultra-focused in what you do and you can have them in these outer suburbs that doesn't really work in Sydney well, at that point anyway, it seemed pretty exciting to go there and, you know, just have a small menu, not have to cater to heaps of people, to the every people that come through the city, that kind of crowd. And, you know, it was fully natural wine and that wasn't, you know, that common at that point. So that was exciting and getting there and seeing the kitchen or lack of kitchen, it was just kind of two induction burners and a deep fryer and a little hibachi. And we were doing a, you know, a six course tasting menu for $70. So it was kind of like, you don't really have many options and you're kind of dictated by what you can do. So the markets, Queen Vic markets is just around the corner from that place. So every day you kind of have a vague idea exactly how many bookings you're going to do. So how much money you've got to spend to kind of get exactly that many dishes out. So then you just go to the market, kind of figure out, okay, I can afford one protein and then build your way back from there. And I mean, the first few menus there, you kind of just throw together what you can get together reasonably and just as long as you can get a menu out, that was all I was trying to do at that point. But then over time, like, you know, you nail one dish 
and then another dish and then another dish. And then you kind of figure out how, how the timings of these things work and what you can kind of keep in stock that'll go further over a longer time or what's easier to put out in service. Like if it's just one chef in the kitchen trying to do a tasting menu for multiple tables, it's really just about how quick you can get stuff out. So that was kind of like cooking everything off the grill there is a necessity because you don't really have time to clean pans and stuff and it's always hot. You don't, you're not waiting for a pan to heat up. You're not, you can really speed up the whole process there. And then once you just kind of whittle down all these things you can't do, you kind of left with, you know, your voice in that restaurant at least. So to me, it just seemed very like natural and pragmatic and it just came together like it did. But I guess that's how people's opinion in food comes about. It just seems normal to them. What do you think it is about uh, Melbourne that um, creates and and loves these sort of smaller bars and restaurants? Um, I don't know. It's, it's very strange coming from Sydney into Melbourne. And seeing that, like, it, Melbourne does like these smaller venues. They, I don't think they necessarily care that they're in alleyways. It's just, you know, where they are. But just to, I guess that's the spaces that are available in Melbourne to small operators. And there aren't really small spaces available to people in Sydney. And if there are, they're hugely expensive and you just can't, there's no way to afford to have people in there in a hospitality space. But, I mean, Melbourne's just a bit... It's not as full-on as Sydney in the city. I think it's a bit more relaxed, so you can kind of sit on the street and have a glass of wine in the afternoon. The weather doesn't get too out of control at any point, so it's always an option. There's always the parks around in Melbourne that are a short stroll away from these venues and they make it pretty easy to hang out there as well. What surprised you about uh, running your own venue as opposed to being the head chef of, of someone else's restaurant? Ooh, a lot of things. Um, maybe just the amount of time it takes mainly. It, it really takes so much time. It's, I mean, as much as you try to prepare for it, I work in the business five days a week as well. So I'm in the kitchen five days a week. And then outside of that, yeah, mainly just the amount of time it takes. Like running running a section in the kitchen full time, you know, it takes up a lot of time. And then once you start adding the responsibilities outside of that on top of it, like chasing up invoices, um, chasing up suppliers, you know, just dealing with accounts, dealing with tax, you know, you start losing one more day of your week to work or two more hours a night to work. And then that just 
keeps compounding and compounding and compounding and you really like I was just shocked at how much time it takes like as much as you try to systemize things and pass things off to other people to you know share the load there's just always something to do and I mean the weight of that responsibility is probably the most difficult thing for me we had the business and it was smooth sailing for six months and I was laughing at how easy it was and you know then a pandemic happened and you start worrying about like suppliers and like how are they doing like your staff having work like if you have work or now you just have this huge financial burden that's sitting there dormant so just you know it can be it can wear you down sometimes and you can't just have a break from it because there are people depending on you so that's you know when you're a head chef, you can, you know, go home and switch off and it's kind of not your responsibility once you're at home. How are you feeling? Um, are there some positives to come out of this moving forward? Yeah, real good. Like, I think, well, for us at least, when we... Every time we have come out of a lockdown, our customers have been great. Like our staff have been great. So we've never really stressed too much about, you know, post-pandemic kind of people. So like we've got, we've been busy since we've reopened. There's heaps of new venues going in around us as well, which are all great. So, I mean, this summer should be good for us. Collingwood's like a fun area to be in in summer. We've got like Smith and Daughters have just moved around the corner, which is, you know, great having Shannon in the area. Hope Street's at one end of Smith Street, just near Bar Liberty. It's like we've got the moon just around the corner from us as well. We've got Congress just there, Ides around the corner, like, it's a pretty good time to be on Smith Street. So we just want to have, you know, a year of uninterrupted trade and then then I can sit back and see how it all went. What do you love about what you do? The people. Like, especially now I I get to own the venue. Like, I can spend more time with the customers rather than in the kitchen. It was strictly in the kitchen. Like the people we work with in hospitality are, I don't know, they're my kind of people, whoever that is. And, I mean, especially in our venue here, like our customers are all great. And it's because uh, it is so small, you know, it, it fills up fast with regulars. It's the same people all the time. And you get to know them and they start treating it like it's their kind of spot as well and, I mean, seeing people come here and treat it like their own and want to introduce their friends to it and seeing that cycle happen, that's the nice bit. Like, the staff we have here at the moment are 
great. So it just feels like we're coming into work and hanging out every day and more people come to hang out. Well, Sam, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a bit of your story. Good luck with the year ahead and keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for that, Hux. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.